Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. A common theme on this podcast is the future and the visions of the future that a certain set of Silicon Valley tech and venture accelerationists are working hard to advance. Today we're going to hear from author and scholar Douglas Rushkoff about his latest book, which lampoons and deflates these characters, offering instead a humanist approach to defining the future by how we comport ourselves in the present. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I'm a media theorist and sociologist and an author and most recently of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Doug, my listeners probably have read some of your prior books. They're, they will at least remember the titles, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, Present Shock When Everything Happens Now, Program or Be Programmed. You've written a lot of books, a couple of novels, a yeah. couple, of, couple of graphic novels. Keeps um, me off the street. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because you know it's probably important up front for me to uh, tell the listener that you and I teach together on occasion and mm-hmm. have had that opportunity, so we know one another reasonably well. But let me ask, for the sake of the listener, what was little Doug up to? How did you become uh, this sort of, I suppose, multi-talented writer artist? Uh, little Doug, um, little Doug watched a lot of TV. Um, you know, I was one of those typical 1970s late 60s, 70s latchkey kids, I sucked on the glass teat of mainstream media every afternoon. And um, ultimately, you know, for better and for worse, kind of went meta on television. I would watch sitcoms and then look at the evolution of the sitcom swing set from doors on the right side of the house to doors on the left side of the house and realized that that sitcoms that had doors on the left tended to be single or divorced people and doors on the right tended to be, you know, still whole nuclear families and wondered what that was all about. And so I was just kind of analyzing media, you know, from a really early age. And then my, my breakthrough experience was, um, weird to talk about this, but it was during um, Return of the Jedi. You know, the Ewok, they initially take uh, Luke and Han Solo prisoner. They Absolutely. think they're bad, right? They take them prisoner, tie them all up. And eventually um, C-3PO and R2-D2 tell the story of the rebels against the the empire and r2d2 is making all these little you know 3d audio sounds of the spaceships crashing and little you know i think he made a couple of holographic projections and c3po because he speaks all the languages came up with this great story and wonderful rhetoric for explaining about how the empire is so bad and the rebels are so good and you see the little ewoks eyes moving back and forth and watching this story and then the ewoks are are so moved by this story and the technology through which the story is told that they not only release Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and make them friends of the tribe, but they fight a war on their behalf in which Ewoks die. And there's this one moment when one little Ewok realizes the other Ewok's dead and you hear him cry. And that was the moment that little Doug said, wait a minute, 
if Darth Vader had gotten down to the moon of Endor first and told his story with his technology about these horrible rebels that are ruining the empire, and would they have fought on his behalf? And that's when I that's when I became a baby media theorist and decided I need to understand whether whether the the essential God's honest truth and and the the real ethical reality of the situation has any advantage over the fake one uh, in in between between rhetoric and technology. And if so, how do we make things transparent and real enough for media to serve the truth rather than fiction? And C-3PO's uh, many talents, of course, come into focus in that moment. Um, his cultural sensitivities, his mm-hmm. uh, language capabilities, uh, all the rest. If I remember correctly, though, they elevate him to the status of a sort of deity. Of uh, a god. Exactly. So he's like, you know, he's like a, a Margaret Margaret Mead and, and, and Gregory Bateson going to the South Pacific Islands, you know, in advance of FDR and the army to understand. I mean, sure, they wanted to understand how girls culture worked in those places, but they're also doing advanced intelligence, just like the or the uh, the Christian missionaries went before the uh, conquistadors in South America. So, I mean, it's a cynical way to look at it, but and you come all the way back around to, you know, what we're doing today, our, our media and technology and interactive. And, and, and uh, boy, those of us who pioneered this space were the fringe counterculture psychedelic weirdos. But what were we ultimately? We ended up being just the advanced scouts of the yuppie scum who came in and took this place over. In this book, Doug, you call yourself a humanist mistaken for a futurist. Uh, you reveal you are, in fact, a Marxist media theorist. Uh, but you start the book in the desert. Why do you start us there? I got invited out there um, for a ton of money. I mean, it's a story I, some people are familiar with at this point, because when I told it, I didn't know it would be a big deal. But it turns out it really upset people. Um, I got invited to do a talk for, you know, the typical group of bankers who pay you too much money to come out. But too much money is enough for me. Um, so I went, did this, what I thought was going to be a talk for these bankers about the digital future. And it turned out they brought five dudes into the dressing room. There was no stage. They just brought five guys into the green room, sat down at this table. Two of them were definitely billionaires and the other three probably at least close enough. And they were peppering me originally with kind of investor-like questions about the net, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, a virtual reality, augmented reality. And then eventually they got around to Alaska or New Zealand and spent the whole hour with me paying me Honestly, between a third and half of my annual CUNY professor salary to sit there for an hour with them at this resort and talk about, you know, how do you maintain control of your security force after your money's worthless? And it set me on this mission. You know, I would say if the if the wealthiest and most powerful technologists and investors and people I've ever sat in a room with feel powerless to influence the future, that the best they can do is prepare for the inevitable event, you know, the climate catastrophe or pandemic or social unrest or economic upheaval or nuclear war, whatever it is that destroys the world. It's pretty friggin' grim. And that, you know, and I I came up with this one and really I observed this phenomenon, what I've come to call the insulation equation, which is that they're living with this idea of 
you know, how much money do I need to earn in order to insulate myself from the reality I'm creating by earning money in this way? And there's no way out. It's I just read you'd read Cory Doctorow's piece. Oh, you published Cory Doctorow's piece. That's where I read it on the Epson printers. Did you link to that? I, I may have put it on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, my God. So he writes this thing about about Epson and how they have this sort of uh, it counts the number of pages and then just bricks your printer after that. And it's justifying that it's it's preventing like ink from leaking onto your desk because there's a little sponge in there that might be filled by then. So you've got to just throw out the printer. And I'm thinking the guy who makes that decision today surely understands about climate change, right? He surely understands he is accelerating the rate at which the planet will end by coming up with a technology like that. But what he's thinking is I will make enough money through this evil technology that it will give me a a, a competitive advantage in outrunning the disaster that I'm actually creating by doing this. And that's for my money, that's just insane. Tesla founder Elon Musk colonizing Mars, Palantir's Peter Thiel reversing the aging process, AI developer Sam Altman, Ray Kurzweil uploading their minds into super supercomputers. You go from there to luxury underground apartments and converted Cold War munitions storage facilities, missile silos, other fortified locations around the world, miniature club med resorts. And and then you explain to us this idea that you call the mindset. And perhaps that's how we got here. What is the mindset? Yeah, well, the mindset takes a while to explain in a way, but, uh, you know, because it's what this whole book ends up being about is I'm trying not to blame it on individual people so much as this mindset that they've that they've internalized. So, yeah, the mindset is this Silicon Valley belief that, you know, human beings are the problem and technology is the solution that, yes, that they contend that they can outrun the externalized damage of their of their enterprises. And there's a number, I guess, of tenets of the mindset. It's fun because I'm just starting to talk about this book now. So it's like, so what are they um, asking myself? I mean, there's kind of a, a, a staunch atheistic scientism that there's don't worry, nothing going on here. Move right along. No soul, no people. No, no. It's just we are just, you know, the computers running on selfish genes. There's a, a techno solutionism that these guys have that they believe that whatever problem there's going to be some big technology that you can throw at it. Even if you need a hundred million dollar MacArthur award to do it, you can do it. There's a, a an adherence and a, a kind of a surrender to the biases of digital code, which is that sort of one zero. Yes, no, everything can be resolved into one of these quantized levels. There's an understanding of human relationships as, as market phenomena that there's, this is all, you know, at the best altruism is just a form of self-interest you know, for long-term self-interest. There's a fear of women and nature, and I guess a need to to neutralize the unpredictability and the unknown uh, with by dominating it or or deanimating it. And then finally, I guess there's this need to see one's own contributions as just utterly unique and without precedent. You know, I've gone down to Burning Man. I did ayahuasca and I saw the truth. There's the climate's imperiled and I'm going to go, you know, so dude, we know this. We've found we, we've known this for a while. So there's this this if you if they're not uh, making it up, then 
it, it, it somehow it doesn't exist. Oh, and the other thing is they're addicted to going meta on stuff. You know, whenever they reach a problem, whenever they reach, it's like like Zuckerberg, you know, reaches his peak of his subscriber base on Facebook and social, you know, the, the, the public is kind of turning on him. So what does he do? He got meta. I'm going to invent meta. This sort of, oh, it's sort of web three, crypto, virtual reality, augmented reality, everything. I'm just going meta or, or Peter Thiel's idea of going from zero to one is meta, right? It's like you, you, you have to rise one order of magnitude above everybody else. That web 2.0 Stuart brand, we are as gods, so we may as well get good at it. You know, I'm going to be even a, a, a self-sovereign individual is what it's like you're going meta on i'm king of me so i'm both me and i'm this sort of sovereign over me at the same time and that's sort of this this going meta that that they all do so those are sort of the main i guess features of this silicon valley mindset that's that's getting us in all this trouble there is I suppose an indictment of capitalism that we would expect from a Marxist uh, media theorist. Yeah, I mean, and I'm uh, not really at the time. I think I might have been a Marxist theorist. I, if I'm anything now, I'm an anarcho-syndicalist media theorist. You know, but yeah, I would also criticize capitalism for sure. And and for a long time, and even in the first kind of almost draft of the outline of this book, I basically blamed capitalism for technology's woes to say that you know the the internet kind of sold out to the mob in the same way you know when a restaurant restaurant sells out to the mob. The restaurant is just kind of a front for money running. So the internet, which was about unleashing the collective human imagination and creativity and all that just became a poster child for the NASDAQ stock exchange. And they just burn these businesses like pop stars just to, you know, get a, to financialize something. But, but as I worked on it, I realized it's not just capitalism. Capitalism dovetailed perfectly with digital technology's ability to go abstract and to, again, go meta. What financialization is, what capitalism is, is going meta on the market. There's a real market. Then there's stock shares that represent the market. Now there's derivatives that represent stock shares and derivatives of derivatives. You know, and it's that that's the part of capitalism that got amplified so easily by digital, which just loves to scale and scale. In the book, you illustrated this by telling the story that you got mugged in Park Slope, which is not something I knew. Uh, why, <laughs> why did that particular account? sort of feed into your thesis. Well, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, we lived in Park Slope for a short time, you know, between the Lower East Side and out here in uh, in the suburbs, which we could actually afford. Um, so, yeah, we were living in this apartment I couldn't really afford to be in, in Park Slope, hoping to, you know, be able to stay there long enough for my kid to get into, what was that school? 321, the famous good elementary school in Park Slope. We didn't last. But um, I'm taking out the garbage in front of the apartment there, and I got mugged at gunpoint. And I went back and posted on this list. It's called the Park Slope Parents List. This great, crunchy, you know, how we're all going to help each other. Famous list. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a good list and all that. I posted, oh, my God, I got mugged on, you know, 7th Street and, and 6th Avenue. And, and this is what happened. Um, look out. And the first two emails I got after that were from people who were mad at me that I had mentioned the location of where I was mugged, that it would adversely 
uh, impact their property values. And I'm like, oh, dude, you know, I'm sorry. We did you were meant to sell? Neither of these people were actually selling their homes, but they were dependent on their home value going up so they could keep refinancing their mortgage at bigger valuations so that they would own more of the house over time. Everyone was doing these interest only loans that lasted like five years. And then you had to buy a new one, but it only worked. You only got to stay in your house if the value of the house was going up, you know, so then you could, you could, you could get in at better valuations. If, if it wasn't, then you'd be screwed. And when that happened, I was like, wait a minute. So these people, these people are in a situation where they care more about the abstracted asset value of their home than the quality of life they're actually living, right? This is like, la, 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 don't tell me. And that's the mindset right there. La, 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 it's not happening. La, 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 la. I'm on the Stanford campus where it's beautiful. I'm not going to look over at the east gate of Stanford where there's a tent village of people who can't even afford a home. Well, I'm here on this, you know, this, it, 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 in, uh, in utopia, you know, and, and I get it, you know, I get it. We we want to close it out, but we've gotten to the point where you can't, you know, that's the sort of Trumpian. Yeah, we could build a wall between us and Mexico, but at some point um, you you got to you got to share vaccines with the world so that the bugs don't get you. There are so many of what I think of as uh, Doug Rushkoff's greatest hits in this book, um, <laughs> but where you you seem to kind of, you know, push into new ground uh, is to some extent this kind of combination of the role of tech and and money um, where, you know, these two things are sort of in conversation with one another. But, you know, you, you also take us, I suppose, on a on another tangent uh, into your theater kid uh, past. And apparently uh, you were in close proximity to Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman at one point. Yeah, I went to I went to CalArts after I went to college. I went to CalArts to uh, get an MFA in theater directing, which I still want to go back to. And in some ways, this book has made me value theater again. You know, I've been writing these serious nonfiction books for a long time. And as I reread this book, I realized that it's a comedy, that it's really a black comedy and that the fact that it's a comedy is not a bad thing, but a good thing that it's empowering to be able to read about the visions of Musk and Teal and Bezos and those guys and laugh at it. It makes it's like, oh, you know, there but for the grace of God, go we thank God I'm not addicted to this mindset. Oh, I just get to live a happy life. I don't need to spend all this energy and time and money to try to insulate myself from the world. Oh, good. Ha ha. Um, so it's made me actually like theater again and, and feel like feel less guilty about what seemed like a self-indulgent artistic fun. You know, I mean, just making theater is just so fun. Are we allowed to do that when the climate's burning? Yes, it turns out we are because it can actually help change the way we think about the world. And I went to CalArts with with all those kind of guys. I mean, I uh, Tim Burton left right before I got there, but, you know, it was a crazy, wonderful, wonderful school. But the theater department was like really uh, uh, old school, classical 
theater training and everything that they taught us was based on Aristotle's kind of narrative structure, beginning, middle, end, crisis, climax, relief. It's that sort of male orgasm curve of narrative fiction, you know, rising action, you know, reversal, then ah, as if the whole point that you tell a story is so people have this catharsis and they can go back to their, you know, humdrum middle-class lives and smile. Whereas for me, I was much more kind of Brechtian and or David Lynchian in my thinking about I like narratives that are open ended, that that require people to think longer and have arguments and go out and do something. You know, the resolution being addicted to resolution is part of the problem. That's that's what the billionaires are. They need the event. They need the climax. They've they've lived with these business plans that have exit strategies so much so that they think that we need an exit strategy as a civilization <laughs> to kind of get out of this thing. So at, at CalArts, I kind of me and my friend Bernie kind of staged a bit of a revolt against Aristotelian narrative. And we're like, there's other story structure, there's other narrative forms. And if we as a civilization can adopt a narrative form other than the Avengers endgame, you know, then maybe just maybe we can grow into a sustainable middle age rather than rather than burning out. So, yeah, the mindset, again, it's addicted to endings. It's addicted to the IPO, the release, the thing, the proof, you know, and there's not life is about living in that weird, squishy in between here we are, man. What the fuck is going on here? One of the people who comes in for a bit of caricature uh, that I would link to this perspective in the book is uh, Steven Pinker, um, the cognitive scientist and uh, also a very prolific author, um, perhaps a, a Rush Coffee and nemesis. Um, <laughs> but you bring up the critique of Pinker that's offered by uh, David uh, Graber and David Wingrow in The Dawn of Everything, which I must admit I am slogging through. Uh, have yeah, not completed the no, book it's yet. Both, it's weird. That book, it's so interesting to me because that book is both like the greatest book ever written and a slog. It's really, isn't that interesting? Because it's like, you've got to be, and that's the thing. I think it's a book you, you buy it and then go to it when you're in the mood for that. And when you are, it's friggin' profound. It's just texturally, historically, everything. But you got to be, it's like, yeah, absolutely. It's a but, thing. But so, so don't try to read it when you're not in the mood for that. It's like, don't take mushrooms when you're in a bad mood either. Right. You know, it's like, don't, don't read, but it's, it may stand up as really when, when it push comes to shove, this is like, a, you know, origins of consciousness in the bicameral mind. This is like, this is, this is the real deal, you know, uh, Mumford, uh, you know, techniques and civilization. I think this book's going to stand up even with some wrong stuff in there, maybe as, a profoundly world shifting thing. And for me, it was, it was like, oh my God, there's finally people who are doing the anthropological work to say, no, the story of Western civilization incrementally getting better with new technologies. And then the new technologies allowed for the you know origins of consciousness. And then with consciousness became the individual. Then we got the uh, enlightenment and individual rights and democracy. And now in the West, Alexander Hamilton, you know, and that that thing. It's like, no, wait a minute. There were democratic societies. They were advanced forms of senates and representation. There was the 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 even the the what do they call it at at occupy when we used to do the um not the mic check but the, what's the form of government that it was uh well very much distributed um yeah but- basically a different kind of of consensus building technique that was used at occupy different than parliamentary you know left right uh debate and the, the their book is great because it does say no 
society is not an arrow moving in this one direction towards progress. It's very circular or spiral staircase and things repeat and we do have dead ends. And um, it, it gets us out of this Western emancipation movement where, you know, science, technology, capitalism, democracy, individualism, liberty, let, you know, westward ho, here we go. And we get all the way to California. We take over these lands from all these other people. We extract their resources. We enslave their children, you know, and we, we, we ruin them. And then as all as if, oh, but things are getting better now because, you know, you can walk down the street reasonably assured that someone's not going to attack you with a sword, you know. Yeah, things are better like that. If I'm a white, Western, upper middle class Manhattan person walking in a good neighborhood, you're right. You're right. But um, at what cost to everybody else and to to our, our environment? It's like, yes, I feel better today because I injected 30 grams of steroids and I'm hitting baseballs really fast. But, you know, what's that doing to my liver and my kidneys and my babies? Well, certainly the first uh, 100 or so pages of that book, if that's all you get through are likely to make you more anarchy curious, uh, if nothing else, which I yeah. suppose uh, may connect also to the Occupy uh, form of governance on some level. Um, but, you know, I, I do, I noted that part in the book in particular, because I feel like that book, you know, like yours kind of asks you to rethink uh, some basics of this, uh, this linear plot line, which you of course are now attempting to take apart. But Let's talk, let's get a little further into it here, you know, because the book doesn't sort of just present caricature and critique. It also uh, suggests some ways that we might go about uh, perhaps reclaiming this sort of civilizational effort. Where do you think we have to start? I mean, I do, I do like policy, right? And I know that's part of the whole frame of, of the, this organization is policy. I do. And I think that a very few intelligent people can work on policy, ideally without the Twitterverse dominating the conversation. You know, it was weird. It was after um, Biden withdrew from Afghanistan and Twitter was going all nuts about it. And people started direct messaging me, Doug, why haven't you weighed in on, you know, Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal policy? And I'm like, Honestly, I know very little about how you withdraw from a war, much less Afghan. I just don't know. I don't know the logistics. I don't know. I really don't know. And I think maybe just if just 100,000 people have that argument, there's probably enough brain power. Just 100,000 of the top thinkers of that. We don't need it to be a million or, or 100 million people um, having that conversation. So with policy, I'm I'm. So so happy. I am delighted to serve as a, a friend to a policymaker who might want to understand the biases of a particular medium, because that's what I'm really good at. But not then. I'm not the one to take it all the way to the policy level. And most of us aren't. So it, it's weird. I'm all for policy, but policy done by people who understand how policy works would be like really cool um, with us kind of staying out of it. And what we can do as people, as the other ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people is, I hate to say it like this, but it's just do less. You'd go local, become more social, you know, meet your neighbors, share things. It, it, it's really as simple as 
if you live in a suburban neighborhood, everybody doesn't need a lawnmower. What the, the current strategy is for everyone to go to Home Depot and get the minimum viable product lawnmower, which is made in a crappy way, extracting the worst resources, and it lasts just a few years, and then you throw it out and it sits on a big pile, and then you get another one like the Epson printer. The smarter thing would be, what if everyone on the block chips in and you get one good lawnmower that actually can last for 50 years? My dad still works. You know, a nice, good, great lawnmower or a manual lawnmower for that matter, which is quieter and leaves the grass on the on the lawn, which turns out is better than taking it away and dumping it somewhere else. You shouldn't even have grass anyway. But let's say you have one lawnmower for the block. You all share it. You make a schedule because no one's really mowing more than a couple of hours a week. It turns out one is enough for 10 or even 20 houses. Is that bad for the lawnmower company? In the short term, it is because now they're selling less lawnmowers and there's fewer jobs. But you need less money because you're not buying as much stuff and we don't have as much pollution, as much externalities. So I would say go local, go social um, and accept that moving towards degrowth is not a bad thing, but a good thing. Degrowth means we have more time to spend with our families and making love and playing cards and tutoring kids and learning to read, doing mutual aid. You know, the, the argument against that, the only argument when, I, when people yell at me for it is they say, well, yeah, but you know, the economy has to keep growing. The economy will not keep growing if you let people do that. And I would say, since when are we obligated to keep the market growing? That's the same as, as the idea that, you know, Technology should be using people instead of people using technology. We get the cart and the horse, the reverse, the cause and effect, the figure in the ground. Once we can, as individuals, kind of transcend this game that we're in, this I, the, the Elon Musk Bezos game of winning, I got to win the game. Um, once you can get over that, you know, read James Carr's Finite and Infinite Games. It'll take you two hours and change your life. You know, it's basically saying you're not playing in order to win. You play in order to keep the game going. And if you look at things that way, rather than trying to fix the future world and this ends justifies the means thing, sacrificing the people of today for the sake of future generations in space, you instead say, no, no, we're doing it right now. I'm going to I'm going to help other people right now. I'm going to make life better right now. Um, it all flips. So you are actually arguing for a kind of cultural transformation um, and a kind of reorganization of the way we live. Um, and, you know, I, I'm certainly uh, keen uh, perhaps to follow your particular uh, version of things and, and follow that set of ideas uh, towards its logical conclusion before I am uh, perhaps Peter Thiel's vision. But I'm kind of you know, thinking back to your original comment on uh, who got down to indoor first. I mean, the cultural transformation that you're suggesting, maybe it's the sort of C-3PO rebel version of it. Uh, and we might characterize the sort of Musk, Teal, et cetera, as the Darth Vader version of it. But I'm afraid Darth Vader made it to indoor first. It's not going to play very well in Peoria. Right. We're living in a society where people believe, I mean, who's closer to to Darth Vader than Peter Thiel. Right. I mean, that's like it with, you know, you know, who's who's closer than that. It's kind of it's kind of perfect. But the advantage we have is that we don't need a story for people to get this. All you got to do is say, you know, look into your lover's eyes, hold your child's hand, put your baby on your bare chest, 
you know, and it's like, oh, right. You know, you're reminded you don't. You know, luckily, this is not OK. We've got to all hold hands and hold a revolution against Trump and these guys. It's going to be hard. There's going to be death. There's going to be pain. But at the end of the thing, follow me up the hill. And the, it's that striving thing that's um, kind of the opposite energy of the maybe the alternative narrative structure I'm talking about, but it's a more kind of experiential form of propaganda, right? <laughs> so maybe it, maybe it still is. And maybe we do. I mean, so yeah, I mean, if I write a book, what is a book but propaganda? But at least I'm disclosing it. You know, here's this problem. And I think there's a different way. But but again, that's why the arts are so powerful, that if you use the arts to have a sort of experiential thing, you can you can move out of this this other way. But but I hear you. I mean, I look at um, QAnon, the conspiracy theorists, and what are they doing but a form of media studies? Do the research, look online, connect the dots, use your own judgment, you know, and 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 figure it all out. What are they doing? But but that. You know, the difference is, you know, and someone actually accused me with this book. They said, oh, you're, you know, you're going to give more ammunition to all the QAnon people who want to see the bad of these of these guys. It's like, yes and no. But I think the QAnon people are among the few people who take these people literally who actually believe them. You know, if you believe the Great Reset and that they can, you know, genetically remodify the humanity and redo this and me, then yeah, if you take these dudes at face value, the only place you could go is crazy conspiracy theory. But the fact is, none of their bunkers are going to work. They're not getting off the planet. It'd be harder to put a dome and live on Mars than to live on Earth even after nuclear disaster. I mean, it's like, it's it's beyond comprehension they're they're crazy these guys are crazy they are crazy they are not close to the stuff that they're describing i mean pokemon go is state of the art that's where we're at right now and it's beautiful it's wonderful i mean play with them 3d audio on your thing it's cool it's great these devices are wonderful i'm not saying technology is bad it's wonderful i love you know i love it i'm here we are talking on this thing this is great this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Better, I think, because I don't really like I like to slice my own bread personally. But um, this is this is great, great stuff. It's just that the people who are making it are doing it in such a way as to destroy the world. They know they're destroying the world and they are actively making the the preparations for the disaster of their own making. And if you realize that, then you realize, oh, well, maybe this is not the way. One of the technologies that you talk about specifically, of course, uh, which is perhaps core to that is artificial intelligence. Um, the fact that a lot of these individuals are both, of course, heavily invested in the development of AI technologies and also appear to be terrified about what it will mean. I know I was at, um, you know, that have you heard of um, what was it called? Foo Camp. It's his friends sure. of O'Reilly. I, I got invited to that one year. And it's like a lot of like big techies, like the people who invented like the, you know, streak feature on Snapchat, like real names. And one guy, we're talking about AI and um, he had seen something I had written that was critical of, of AI. And he's like, you know, Doug, I probably shouldn't be doing that. I'm like, why? He's like, you know, when the AIs take over, they're going to see what you said. 
they're going to see what you said. And who knows what they'll do at that point? Cause they'll be in charge. And I'm like, what? Oh, so you don't, you don't tweet or say, say no, I don't tweet anything about AI. Cause I don't want them to know. And I'm like, well, if they're AIs, then won't they be able to do mach- to, to, to do, you know, statistical analysis and machine learning and figure out from what you didn't do that you're a person who doesn't like them and also deserves to be killed. And so he's, he's like, already hiding from the AI. He's already hiding proactively from AI without the knowledge that, of course, the AI is going to figure out he's one of the people that was hiding from AI and is probably the most dangerous. They're going to come for him first. And that's so I so freaked him out. He like ran to the bathroom after I said that, like I, I, I you know, unleashed his, his colon or something with fear by saying that. But the great thing about the AI thing and I and and just speaking with you, I realize this is really the, the whole thing is. You know how we're saying in the mindset that these guys want to go meta, that they feel safe if they go meta on us or look at us from above or or, you know, go into the the virtual reality version or create the derivative of the stock. The reason they're afraid of AI is because AI is the one thing that could go meta on them. You know, it's the thing. But it's our it's the next level. It's at, and we can't join them there. It's, it is up there. Um. So if yeah, if you really do believe that going meta is the way to dominate um, the other, then sure, AI is going to is going to dominate you. I'm not I'm not so scared of AI so much as and this is where I need you so much as policy people, you know. So even if an AI has the intelligence of an ant, um. It's not that I'm afraid of it being smarter than me. I'm afraid of us surrendering vital societal functions and decisions to that ant, right? <laughs> Just as we turn over decisions now to shareholders or, you know, who are, who are deciding whether to create pollution or whatever, you know, don't, don't, sur- don't give, it's what we voluntarily surrender to the AI that's the problem, not the AI itself. These are babies. They're babies, not even. You end this book by inviting folks to join you in listening more carefully to the promises of the tech titans and the billionaire investors, as well as the world leaders in their thrall. In each of every one of their grand plans, technology solutions, and great resets, there's always an and or a but. Some element of profit, some temporary compromise or cruelty, some externality to be solved at a later date or some personal safety valve for the founder alone, along with his promise to come back for us on the next trip. (laughs) Yeah. A word that doesn't appear in this book uh, that I've seen discussed quite a lot lately is long-termism, which is perhaps uh, emerging as a kind of, I guess, maybe not unified, but uh, a set of ideas that a lot of these folks espouse. Yeah. I mean, some long-term thinking is a beautiful thing. If you understand, that's why I always say I'm not a futurist. You know, the, the tech bros problem is that they look at the future as this inevitability that the best thing you could do is predict and prepare for. Whereas me, as more of a hippie anarchist person, I look at the future as this thing that we're creating in the present with our actions. The future is fungible, not fixed, you know, and but I'm not betting on it, which is why I don't need it to be predictable. I'm hoping and I'm I'm ready for unpredictable outcomes. I like that. I like novelty. The last thing an investor wants, you know, money people is novelty. No, no, I just bet on that. I bet on colonialism. I bet on uh, on on this this particular profit margin. But the long-termism that some of these folks are talking about, like if you if you read, you know, Musk's tweets or Thiel or one of these guys, they believe that 
Like there's only 8 billion people alive today. But after we migrate to space, there'll be like 90 trillion people out in the cosmos. So it's okay to sacrifice the lives and quality of life of people today in order to promote the joy of those people, because the joy of 90 trillion people far outweighs the pain of 8 billion. But I challenge that whole that whole notion first, whenever you're sacrificing people in the present for some future fictional thing, you are going to end up in a worse place, not a better one. There's no ends justifies the means never works. So whether you're a libertarian accelerationist who says, let's rip the bandaid off now, or if you're a more long-termist who says, we'll slowly let these people die today so we can do this other thing in the future. No, 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 no. The, the only way is to look at the now. Yes, we can put sandbags up. Yes, we can work together to mitigate disasters and stuff where I'm not saying ignore the future, but we address the future through the present and most importantly, through our comportment in the present. The way that we work together now is the future. It's not whether we put up the wall, it's how we build the wall. And who are we building the wall against? Are we putting the wall up against the tide that's going to come in and destroy Miami? Or are we putting in the wall against the Mexicans who are going to come walking up here when they're flooded and climate change down there? Two very different walls put up in two very different ways. Doug, I'll ask you a last question. Do you remain hopeful? Do you do you remain sort of uh, optimistic, perhaps? And I realize the optimism and hope perhaps are different terms, but uh, that we can perhaps uh, make the set of decisions that you would like to see here, that the, your version of vast cultural transformation at this point is possible. Yeah. You know, I'm actually oddly enough, I'm more hopeful after writing and and just rereading this book than I was beforehand. When I started this book, I was like. We're all going to die. I'm going to witness the end of the world in my lifetime. And if I don't, at least my daughter will. Um, and now I'm looking at it as, oh, wow, these loser capitalist technocratic billionaire idiots are so addicted to their way of building technology and doing business that they would actually rather the world end in an apocalypse than change their ways that they are in some ways actively wishing for the end game to put them out of their misery of worrying about what, what it is they're doing. Just bring it on already. It's a Steve Bannon kind of a thing. Let's just wipe the slate clean so we can get from game A to game B, reboot the civilization and just put out a whole bunch of humane technologies that raise people like nice cage free free range chickens. And I'm like, no, um, they're crazy. They're crazy. So I, I challenge the underlying foundation of the whole thing. And I challenge the underlying foundation that climate change is not a much easier um, thing to solve through massive reduction in our energy expenditure, a change of our expectations about how many times you're going to get to go to Europe in your lifetime. You know, maybe everyone gets to go once. And that's it, you know, and then eventually we can go on little, you know, helium, uh, if there's still helium left or whatever, you know, hot air drones or something, you know, we'll find other ways in the future. But just everybody just shut up, calm down, play baseball, meet your kids. They're really cool. 
you know, and there's going to be a whole lot more for everybody. The book's called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. The latest from Doug Rushkoff, uh, but there are many more on the list to get through once you've read that one. So, Doug, (laughs) thank you so much for talking to me. I hope we'll do it again. Thank you. Thanks for doing Tech Policy Press. This is actually this is an important friggin' thing. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Doug Rushkoff. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.